The book of Revelation can be an incredibly confusing and even frightening read, but it wasn't meant to be either. In fact, behind the violent and alarming imagery of Revelation lies a world of beauty as we see the self-sacrificial love of Christ forever triumph over the darkness we encounter all too often in our world. Join us as we take a deeper look at what the disciple John wrote and why. Dispel common misconceptions of what it all means and celebrate the glorious future it promises in our series, Rescuing Revelation. Good morning, kingdom people. Viva la revolution. It goes on. I love to feed people, don't you? I think that is just so kingdom. And our uh, food shelf is just exploding. I mean, it's just been great, the number of people coming and stuff. Uh, so I really encourage you to keep that thing stocked. And uh, we have matching donations here, so uh, whatever you give uh, is, is actually doubled. So um, keep that coming. I've, it's been really honoring to do this and to see folks step up. And uh, the, the more we give, the more the needs there are. And then the more we give, the more it just goes on and on. But it's a beautiful thing. It is the kingdom in action. Also, it's kingdom in action is this thing we've been doing this month, uh, Project Home, where we uh, turn the church every night into a homeless shelter. Uh, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's been going absolutely great. Uh, I just hear a lot of great stories here. We've had 11 to 16 people every night, and they're getting blessed, and the volunteers are getting blessed. I'm told that sometimes the kids like it so much that they don't want to leave in the morning. <laughs> they, want to, they want to hang around here. And then I heard this great story I just wanted to share um, where one of the volunteers that we have here, we had 150 people who were volunteering uh, on our end, uh, just uh, be with these folks in the evening. Uh, one of them, it turns out, first came to Woodland Hills Church uh, three years ago as one of the homeless people who stayed here. And then uh, she got her feet on the ground, family got stabilized, and, and they are now attending at Woodland Hills. And now she's volunteering at Project Home because she wants to give back. Isn't that great? Yes. That's the kingdom in action. In the kingdom, that's how you do. That's it. That, that's it. it just goes around. You be a blessing, and you get blessed, and you be a blessing. And it goes on. One more thing before we jump into the message, and that is that I, I want us to pray for, you know, we've got ten to 15,000 uh, parishioners around the globe every week. Ten to 15,000 people download messages. And there's these house churches all over the place that are kind of just being birthed from this. One of them is in the Ukraine. And uh, they asked us to pray for them. And I want to do that right here. It's a, uh, a family that... Um, they stumbled onto our stuff some time ago. He actually has been translating uh, the sermons into Russian. And then he plays them on a website. So you go to his website. I've been there. And I'm up there preaching, but I'm speaking Russian. It's really cool. <laughs> and, uh, and he's translating some of the, uh, the writings into to Russian. And they're just, they've got four families. They get together, and they, just, they consider Wilden Hills sort of their, their mother uh, church. And they're an extension of us. But they tell us that, as you know, uh, right now things are very, very tense. And um, it's like a powder keg, and it will, well, one little match could blow this thing up. Uh, you could easily have a civil war going on there. As a good percentage of the people want to be Russian, the others want to be Ukrainian, and, and who knows what Russia is going to do. And so it's a very, very tense time. And uh, so I want to pray for the Ukraine. I want to pray for them. And then we'll pray for this message. Uh, Father, uh, we want to right now cash in some of the chips that you give us as kingdom people, the unique authority we have uh, to agree with you, your heart, and to call down heaven. Um, and so, Father, we pray first that there would be uh, peace flowing from your throne down to this area. Uh, Lord, give those who are the, the decision makers in this tense situation uh, a wisdom to know the ways of peace and a heart that desires it. 
We just pray peace, uh, God. However this is going to be resolved, we pray there'd be no bloodshed, that there'd be no one killed, that there'd be no injuries. Um, and, and Father, just in, in saturate the place with your, your, your presence. Um, and we pray, Lord, for this, this uh, family uh, and for their house church, God, that you would protect them. Whatever is going to happen in that land, uh, Lord, station powerful angels around them if that's the way you do it. Uh, and, and we just pray protection on them. And we pray, God, that they would have a sense of peace uh, in this situation and a sense of uh, encouragement in the situation. We pray blessing on their ministry, blessings on their family. Lord, use them to keep expanding the gospel, spreading the revolution uh, in, in, in the Ukraine. Uh, and, and just even give them in this, in, the, in this time a sense of joy. And Father, we pray for this message and for all the pod who are listening and everyone in this auditorium, God, that you'll give us a, a mind that's receptive to your word, a heart that internalizes your word. Uh, we know that a speech doesn't do anything of kingdom value unless you are in it, infusing it with your power. So come, Holy Spirit, here and now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So we're in this series called Rescuing Revelation. Um, we're rescuing Revelation from the crystal ball way of reading it, where it's about the last few years of world history, and it's, it's interpreted literally, uh, which makes it a, a puzzling, for me it was a puzzling, Revelation was a puzzling and irrelevant book. Puzzling because I couldn't understand it, irrelevant because uh, it only applies to the last seven years of history, and, and by then it's too late. Um, but we want to rescue it from that and, and uh, offer a different way of looking at Revelation. Um, it's a, it's a view that's very common among scholars who study Revelation, but unfortunately, it's, it's mostly unknown uh, at a popular level. Um, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's a way that applies it. It makes it relevant to our life. Uh, it makes it come alive. It's transforming. It's beautiful. I once thought this book was puzzling and irrelevant, and now I find it to be just so packed with wisdom and power, and, and it's, just, it's just something else. And that's what we're trying to share. And I know it's a new perspective for most of us, um, and so be okay processing it. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. Um, just listen to it and internalize it and see what comes of it. Uh, it may be the thing that, that opens the door uh, to this book becoming really relevant in your own life. I want to start with a little preview here, a little video clip, just to kind of prime the pump about the end of the world, since that's what most people think the book of Revelation is about. Here it is.
all going to die. <laughs> what is it about those shows that makes them fascinating? I mean, the, the, they think of the billions of dollars that are poured into making cool special effects like that. They're really impressive, but they've got to be very expensive. But Hollywood does that because they know they're going to make a good profit on it. Uh, apocalyptic fever ebbs and flows throughout history. You can see it rising and, and subsiding all over the place. But it seems like in America and in Europe, it strikes us about every couple of decades. As I shared last week, I think we're in one of these times where people are just, you know, maybe it's the global warming thing, you know, I don't know, but there's a sense of, uh, there's an obsession with the end of the world. And that's why we like to go to movies like this and thinking about it. And we hear about comets out there that could possibly strike us or, or one of these viruses that they're, you know, they're recovering these prehistoric viruses. And uh, if one of those, we don't have any immunity to it, if one of those got loose, I'm told it could potentially kill us all. Woo! We're in one of those times. And whenever we get in those times, well, people start to look at the book of Revelation uh, as a crystal ball, trying to get a forecast of it, trying to correlate uh, Revelation with current events and, and things like that. Um, when one of those times, and so th- this is why we're feeling the need to have this series here, uh, to give an, a different way of looking at this thing. It's indicative of how folks tend to read the book of Revelation. The word for Revelation in Greek is the word we get the word apocalypse from. And uh, the literal reading of Revelation, with all the violence that's there, has changed the meaning of apocalypse. Uh, it's come to be synonymous with, with dramatic end-of-the-world stuff. That was a, a, a disaster of apocalyptic proportions. Uh, we use the word like that. It means this dramatic, violent end of the world stuff. Whereas, in fact, the word apocalypse in Greek doesn't mean that at all. It means the unveiling, or the disclosure, or the revelation. That's why it's translated revelation, the book of Revelation. But it's not a revelation about the end of history. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can see that just from the first three verses of this book. Here's what it says. I read this last week. It's worth going over. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. We've got to understand soon the way the audience would have understood soon. And it would have been something that's going to happen 2,000 years later. This is first century stuff. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. And here's everything he saw. The word of God and, or could be translated even, the testimony of Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation is about. The word of God, even, the testimony of Jesus. Uh, The word for testimony there is the word we get the word martyr from. To bear witness by being willing willing to lay down your life. So this book is about Jesus Christ. uh, About Christ crucified. Uh, And and what John does is he'll take the revelation, the disclosure of Jesus Christ, and he applies it to the situation that the, the audience he's writing to is in. They're in a time of persecution. They're facing likely martyrdom. And so he's going to unveil Jesus Christ to them in ways that apply to their life. And once we understand what he's doing, we can apply it in beautiful and transforming ways to our own life. But this book is about Jesus Christ. So what I want to do here today is uh, uh, we're going to be looking at what is a pivotal scene in the book of Revelation. It really is provides the, the interpretive key for the rest of the book. It sets the stage for the rest of this book. It's found in chapter 5, and it involves a lion and a lamb. So we're entitling this, The Lion and the Lamb. I'll first give a little bit of background leading up to chapters 4 and 5. I'll then talk a little bit about a, a common, but I think mistaken way of interpreting uh, a passage in chapter 4. And then we'll turn to chapter 5 and find out about this lion and the lamb. So the background is this. In chapter 1, 
we have, as the passages we just said told us we're going to have, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shows up. But remember, this is apocalyptic literature. As I shared last week, because it's apocalyptic literature, uh, it's, it uses dramatic symbols that aren't intended to be taken literally. It's like a Picasso painting. Um, if you try to interpret his paintings literally, you'll miss the point of the painting. So also, Revelations uses dramatic symbols, sometimes even surrealistic symbols. And they all have meaning. Uh, they relate to the Old Testament or sometimes to other apocalyptic literature at the time. And we need to understand them in that context. Uh, but it's not to be taken literally. And the folks would understand that. This is the genre of literature we're dealing with. So when Jesus shows up, well, we get a surrealistic picture of him. So he's got eyes that are on fire. He's got this white hair. He's got bronze for feet. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, it's terrifying if you take it literally. Uh, he's, he's shining like the noonday sun uh, and a number of other things. And all of those particular symbols have meaning when you uh, look at the Old Testament and find out what John's referring to. And I can't, don't have time to do that right now. But the first chapter is just Jesus Christ showing up. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we have... Um, uh, Jesus addressing the seven churches uh, in the province of Asia. These are actual churches with actual people, and, and he gives them a word of warning and or encouragement. All right, so he just kind of anchors the book. Then the content of the book begins really in chapter 4. Having said that prelude, we come to chapters 4 and 5. And chapter 4 is all about the throne room that John sees, and it's full of symbolism. And I don't have time to unpack that either, I'll say a little bit more about it later on. But that, 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 that's chapter 4. It's really setting up chapter 5. But the first two verses of chapter 4 have played a really significant role in the thinking of a lot of people uh, who hold to, uh, who read the book of Revelation like a crystal ball. Not all of them would, would hold this, but this is the view that I was taught. Here's what the first two verses say. After this, he says, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, And a voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That's one of the things he says about Jesus in chapter 1. His voice was like a trumpet. That's an interesting metaphor. But uh, he said, that same voice said, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. Or what is about to soon going to take place. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And then the rest of the chapter then flushes that out in symbolic ways. Now, what I was taught, and it's a pretty common teaching, is that when the voice says, come up here, uh, that's John's way of referring to the rapture. And the rapture, as I mentioned last week, is, is this belief that when Jesus returns, uh, Christians are literally going to be suctioned up into the clouds, and they're going to go away someplace else, and then all the nasty stuff found in the book of Revelation is going to take place. That's when Jesus comes back and slaughters a lot of people, and the beast, and the Antichrist, and all those earthquakes, and all that kind of stuff. So, but the Christians will, will, will be away. We're going to be safe while this world is going to kind of go to hell in a handbasket. Um, I'll, I'll say more about this belief uh, in the sixth week of this series. But right now, I just want to share a few th- reasons why I think that interpretation of these verses is mistaken. Um, whether you believe in the rapture or not, I don't think you can find it in this passage. But the first thing is this. We have to understand the passage the way that the first century audience would have understood it. And when the voice says, that trumpet voice says to John, come up here, I want to show you some things. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that probably they would have understood the voice to be saying to John, come up here, I want to show you some things. That's all the verse says. <laughs> you don't find a hint of a church in that verse. 
uh, let alone a church at the end of history in that verse. He's talking to John, and then he shows John what he wanted to show him. It's just bad biblical interpretation to read into a verse something that's not there, that's not even hinted at. So that's the first problem with this, this uh, interpretation. Second thing is that this theology, which I call an escapist theology, because the hope is that we're going to escape. And the world's going to be in all sorts of trouble, but we get to escape. Um, that is, I believe, unbiblical and has some very negative ramifications. It's unbiblical, I think, in the sense that the entire new, the thrust of the New Testament, the hope that we're given, is not about us escaping uh, the earth or escaping tribulation. We're, we're, we're promised that we're going to go through tribulation. The hope isn't to escape the earth, to go to heaven. Rather, the call all throughout the New Testament is to bring heaven down to earth. God loves this earth. He doesn't give up on his real estate. He wants to recover, redeem, restore, renew this earth. And he wants to use his people to do it. And, and, and so Jesus says that we're, when we pray, we should pray, Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, that's just the rule of God, let your rule come, which means that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to live in a way and we're to pray in a way where we're bringing heaven down to earth so the world can see in the church a preview of, of heaven, as much of heaven as possible, what the final state of things will be. But it's not to abandon this earth to destruction. No, we're to, to be restorers of the earth, keepers of the earth. The original commission was to be landlords of this earth. So I think it just gets that, that, that the, the hope of the New Testament wrong. It also, many who hold this view, I wouldn't say all of them, but, but many folks who hold this view, it, it can lead to a, a mistaken view of the earth. The earth becomes just sort of like a, a, a waiting station for heaven. It's like a temporary prop to get us to the real thing. And, um, uh, and once it's done, once it's served its purpose, we can just kind of just dispose of it like we would a used tissue. And see, if you have that view that this whole earth, the physical realm, is, 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 is just set for destruction and God's not really interested in it, well, then you're not going to be real passionate about taking care of the place or worrying about how animals are treated or things like that. No, it's like that'd be like washing the windows of the Titanic as it's sinking. Um, and, and in fact, I can tell you from personal experience that if you start preaching that God is passionate about the earth and the animal kingdom and wants people to be passionate about the earth and the animal kingdom, you, some groups, will label you a liberal. You're a liberal. You're a liberal, tree-hugging, animal-loving, veggie-loving, you know, poopy face. It's just, it's, it's just a word they throw around when they don't like you. Liberal. Which is crazy because our first mandate in Genesis 1, the very first thing we're told is take care of the earth and animal kingdom. We're to extend God's loving dominion to the earth and the animal kingdom. That's our Magna Carta. That's our charter. That's our job description. And, and it didn't go away. We're still responsible for that. We're to be the caretakers of God's garden and of God's pets. Uh, and I can show you hundreds of verses throughout the Bible where God expresses a passion for the earth and the animal kingdom and calls on people to care about the earth and the animal kingdom. And I can show you many, many verses where God gives a strong warning to those who don't care about the earth and the animal kingdom. In fact, in Revelation, far from finding the earth being destroyed, we read this. The time has come to judge the dead and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Don't tell me God isn't passionate about the earth and the animal kingdom. You know, the, the, talking about the earth and the animal kingdom for kingdom people, it, this isn't a liberal thing, a tree-hugging thing, a left-wing thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a foundational biblical thing. It's, it's, it's our call. And the ones who should be worried are those who don't care about the earth and the animal kingdom. The ones who just use it and throw away like a used tissue. Because that verse, and there's many others just like it, gives a strong warning about that. 
Uh, no, folks, uh, we, we as kingdom people, we should be concerned about the imprint we leave on the earth and whatever suffering we put animals through. Uh, that It's our responsibility to be thinking about that and to be adjusting our life accordingly. So I worry about that escapist mindset. Uh, it, it gives the wrong view of the earth. It doesn't motivate folks to, to be doing their, their original job description that we're given. The third problem with it is this. If Jesus shows up at the end of time and slaughters everybody, we got a different Jesus on our hands. Uh, this is a quote that I've used before, but I can't, it's just too perfect to ever pass up when I'm talking on this topic. Uh, it's by a, a very well-known pastor whose name I'm not going to mention. He's a, a, a pastor of a very, very large church and a large movement, and he said this in a very popular Christian magazine. He says, in Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter. Now, a pride fighter, it's not a typo. People think I meant prize fighter. A pride fighter is a cage fighter. You know that ultimate fighting thing where two guys get in the, I think it's only guys, probably not, but there's two guys who get in the ring and they don't have any gloves or anything, they just can kick and they can hit and they go pit bull on each other. Uh, well, that's what Jesus is, apparently. He shows up, he's a pride fighter, a cage fighter, with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. This is a guy I can worship, because apparently being able to be a cage fighter is a criteria for worshipability. I cannot worship, worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. I know it is sad. It is sad. You wonder how a pastor can't worship a guy he can beat up when he already crucified him. He must have forgot that. Um, but beyond that, if that's true, if, if a cage fighter shows up with a commitment to make someone bleed, if you're taking revelations literally, you're talking about nations being slaughtered. Well, then we've got a different Jesus on our hand. I can't imagine a picture of Christ that's more antithetical to the Jesus of the Gospels than that one. So Jesus in the Gospel, he tells us and he models for us that he'd rather die for, for enemies than at the hands of enemies than call legions of angels to destroy enemies to protect himself. He tells us, to, to, and he models for us, how to, to love our enemies, to bless our enemies, to feed our enemies, to serve our enemies, to pray for our enemies, to do good to our enemies, even when they're life-threatening. And he tells us to swear off all violence and to put down the sword and to, if we're struck, to turn the other cheek. The very center of his message is, is about this. It's the, he even makes it a criteria for being a child of God, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And so we're to believe that when Jesus shows up the second time, he's, he's the exact opposite of that. When he shows up a second time, it's like, you know, all they, he comes and he says, you know, folks, all that love, love your enemy stuff, uh, turn the other cheek. Well, end of that program. We're going to slaughter some people right now. Uh, you know, it does the exact opposite. This is like Jesus breaking bad, you know? Or the first Jesus was in a good mood. The second Jesus, he's really ticked off. It's, it's, uh, it's absolutely like the, the first Jesus reveals the nice side of God, but now we're going to see the other side of God, the, the vengeful side of God. You've got an entirely different kind of thing going on here. Now, the problem is, among other things, is that if that's right, then it seems to me that Jesus wasn't quite telling the whole truth when he was here the first time. When he says he's revealing God. When he says, if you see me, you see the Father. Is that true or not? Can we trust that that's what the Father looks like? When he goes to the cross, can we trust that that's the heart of the Father? Or is it only the nice side of the Father? Uh, it, no, if he says, if you see me, you see the Father. If we can trust that, then he can't be concealing a whole dimension of the Father. Paul says in, in Colossians 2 that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. The fullness, not just a fragment, a part, an aspect, a characteristic. No, the fullness, everything that makes God God, was revealed in Jesus Christ. So he's not concealing the mean side of God from us 
This is what God looks like. That's why Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. The brightness of his brightness. When God shines, it looks like Jesus. And he is the exact representation of his very being. The word there is hypostasis, and it means essence. Uh, it, it means God, God is Christ-like all the way down. <laughs> You're not going to find a part of God that's not Christ-like, uh, Christ as defined in the Gospels. There's no, there's no side of him that's different than what we find in Jesus, who, uh, as he ministered to people, gave his life for people, loved enemies down here, which means that he doesn't change, which is exactly what Hebrews tells us. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means he doesn't break bad. <laughs> he, he doesn't, uh, his mood doesn't send him into a killing mode. So, folks, here's the thing. And that means that if he was about loving enemies the first time, he's going to be about loving enemies the second time. If he's about turning the other cheek the first time, he'll be about turning the other cheek the second time. If he's willing to, 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 to manifest self-sacrificial love the first time, he's about manifesting self-sacrificial love the second time. If he's against violence the first time, he's going to be against violence the second time. Which means we can't find in Revelation a different Jesus than we find in the Gospel. And in fact, if we are finding a different Jesus, that should be one clue that we're not reading the book right. And I, I'm going to try to show, Eve, starting today, that, that if we're reading the book of Revelation as an apocalyptic book in the first century you will find the exact same Jesus there that we find in the Gospels. Now, that doesn't mean, I know you're asking, what about the final judgment? People are going to be judged. It's going to be terrible. And that's true. There is a final judgment. And, and there will be just punishment for those who will not repent. And, and Jesus tells us, the first Jesus tells us that it will be terrible. It's like Gehenna, his word for hell. Dump outside of Jerusalem. It's, it's a waste bin. There is that. But the question is, I can only just mention it here. I'll go into it deeper later on. But how does God bring that about? How does God end up judging sinners and, and conquering evil? And um, here's the thing, and I've said this a million times, and I'll say it ten million times before I'm done. All of our thinking about God should be centered on the cross, for reasons I can't all get into now, but the cross is the ultimate revelation of God. Well, look at how did God confront sin and overcome evil on the cross? Uh, and the answer is he didn't act violently when he did that. The Bible tells us a number of times in the New Testament that uh, the cross disempowered Satan and the powers brought an end to their, 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 their uh, uh, reign. In principle, uh, it totally collapsed the kingdom of darkness. They've been defeated. They're being brought to nothing. We still live in a world that doesn't manifest that yet, but that's because we're living in deception. In principle, they've already been defeated. When God defeated Satan, he didn't have to act violent. He didn't lift a finger against him. He just manifested the truth of who he was. And that light dispels darkness. That, 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 that the revelation of that character is what does, everything else just takes care of itself. He ends up, and this is what we find throughout the Bible, turning evil back on itself. Through his wisdom and through his love. And so the cross, how was it brought about? Well, we learned that the cross which defeats Satan was brought about by Satan. That it's because Satan's evil, that's his own doing, that's on him. He doesn't understand love, so he didn't get why Jesus was down here. So he thinks, well, I can kill the guy. So he orchestrates the crucifixion, and it all backfires. It re- sin always ricochets back on us, unless there's mercy that, 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 that protects us from the consequences of it. You might say that evil is inherently self-destructive. Violence is inherently self-destructive. When it runs its full course, it ends up being destroyed. But it's not God that has to destroy it, it destroys itself. And so I see the final judgment as just the time when God shows up and everything is, whatever's real is real. 
Uh, there's no more deception. Here's what God really is like. And, and here's what we really are like. And to the degree that we're consistent with God, he'll refine that, perfect it, and now we're in the kingdom of God. But to the degree that we're obstinately opposed to that, to that degree, all the consequences that are inherent in our sin come back on us and we're destroyed. But it's not God who has to act violently to do it. He doesn't have to change his character, in other words. Anyways, I can say a lot more about that, but i got to move on. But there is a final judgment, and it's bad. It's just that I don't think Jesus has to break bad to do it. All right. So that, that brings us to this throne room. Um, and here's where things really get interesting. In fact, this throne room is all about addressing the question I just asked. What is the character of God when it comes to ruling and judging the world? So here's what we find. Now remember, John was taken up in the Spirit, and I was given a view of the throne room. It's described in various ways in, in four. And then it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and it was sealed with seven seals. Okay, the scroll is just an ancient book. They didn't bind books the way we do today. They just wrote on scrolls. So this is a book. And it's held in the right hand of God. God's the one sitting on the throne. Uh, the right hand, throughout the Bible, and in all the apocalyptic literature, is a, an idiomatic way of referring to the power or sovereignty of God. When Moses says in Exodus 15, we beheld the right hand of God, he's not saying he saw a Monty Python movie where a little hand came down and grabbed people. No, there's no actual hand there. They weren't referring to actual hands. Uh, it was a metaphor for power. We saw the power of God, the sovereignty of God put on display. Um, and so this scroll being held in the right hand of, uh, of, uh, of God is a scroll that holds the secret about God's power, about God's rule, about how God overcomes evil, how he defeats opponents. It's all found there. And therefore, it's a scroll about the character of God. Because his character is revealed in how he rules and how he overcomes evil. And so the scroll holds a secret of all that. But the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, when you, when you come to a number in the book of Revelation, just know that you're not dealing with a number. You're dealing with a symbol. It's coming for all apocalyptic literature to do this. And seven in Judeo-Christian apocalyptic literature always stands for completeness or thoroughness or perfection. So John is saying that this, this, this scroll was completely, perfectly sealed. In other words, no one's going to be able to look at this uh, unless someone is able to open this thing. The question is, what is God's true character? How does God rule? How, how, how does he plan on wrapping this whole thing up? How is it going to be brought to completion? And that question, by the way, is a central question that runs throughout the Bible. Because beginning with Genesis 3, human beings were deceived by a false picture of God. And in various ways, we've been under a deception about God ever since. It's how the enemy holds us in bondage. So this is about the revelation that will set us free. But then there is this uh, uh, angel. And he says, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? Kind of an interesting, odd question, I think. Wouldn't you think you'd say, who's strong enough to open the scroll? Or who's skillful enough to open the scroll? But he's asking instead a character question. Because it's a character issue. Who, who's got the kind of character that can discern the true nature of God's rule, the true nature of God's overcoming of evil, the true character of God? And in just imposing the question that way, he's telling us this, that your, our ability to understand God and his ways Will, will be a reflection of our own character. Like can only know like. Uh, and so only to the degree that one is conformed to, to, to God in their heart can they really understand what God's up to. And this is why I think the book of Revelation is something like a Rorschach test. You know those inkblot tests 
where what you see says as much about you as it does about the spot, maybe more. So also, in reading the book of Revelation, the masterful way that we'll see here in a moment, the masterful way that John uh, uh, works with symbols, uh, if you're reading on a surface level and you're, and you're trusting in a pride fighter kind of power, coercive power, then, then you'll find it. But if you have the kind of character uh, and, and a trust in, in the power of self-sacrificial love and trust that Jesus is not like that, you'll see the symbol will take on a different meaning altogether. And you'll find the same Jesus in the Gospels reflected throughout this whole entire book. And that is what reveals the true character of God. So who is worthy? Well, then we find out that no one is worthy. In heaven or earth, no one could open the scroll. So John weeps and weeps. He wails because no one was found that was worthy to, to look inside. Um, it, it, to say that no one is worthy is simply to say that we're all, the world has fallen and the world is under deception, the world is blinded. We don't get God on our own. Um, and so John weeps because if no one can open the scroll, that means it will be forever a secret. We'll never know the character of God. We'll never know how God rules. We'll never understand his aims. We'll be always in the, in the same position Job was in in the book of Job where he never did find out why disaster fell on his house. God and the world and everything else will be nothing but a mystery, so John weeps. But then an elder comes to him and says, Don't weep. Look, uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now this elder, uh, in, in the previous chapter, uh, it refers to 24 elders that are around the throne. Remember, a number is never a number. And so what does this stand for? The best explanation I've ever heard is that, that you know, in ancient Israel, they had the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel. That was, they were founded on 12. In the New Testament, we have 12 apostles, not coincidentally, and it's, we're founded on that. So uh, the interpretation that I think makes most sense is that the elders represent God's people throughout the ages, and they're around the throne of God. The 12 plus 12 equals 24. It's a symbol for the complete, all the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, are around the throne. And why are we around the throne? Because we are around the throne. Uh, we, right now, not just when we die and go to heaven, but the Bible tells us that we are, when you surrender to Christ, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. In the present. We are right now seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are in the throne room. It's, it's happening right here. Now, we don't see that, of course, but that shouldn't surprise us because... The memo says that we don't see most reality. I don't know if you read that memo or not, but our senses only pick up a small, small, small fraction of what is real. Most of what is real is above or below our threshold to experience it. So we don't see the throne room, but, but it's, it's, it's real. And John's here giving us a vision uh, into this invisible realm. So this is the elders that are on the throne. And so the, the church says to, to, to John, because the church apparently is supposed to know this, uh, that there's one who can, that's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, the lion is a standard symbol for the Messiah. It goes back to a prophecy in Genesis 49. And, and it's a symbol of the, of the kind of Messiah most people were expecting. A ferocious beast who can devour his prey. A Messiah who will be powerful and mighty and majestic and will devour our enemies and set Israel free and restore it to a sovereign nation no longer under Roman oppression. That's what everyone wanted. So he says, oh, there's a lion. And he triumphed. So you get the impression that the one who can open the scroll and it will tell us the true nature of God's rule and power is, is, is one who's, who's vicious. It's a violent symbol. And if God's character was like that, then he would be the one to open the scroll. But watch what happens. John looks, and he sees a lamb. 
The word there actually means, it's not the normal word for lamb. It means a tiny lamb, a little lamblet, a cute little lamb. There's this cute little lamb looking as if it had been slain. That word could be translated slaughtered, or even it has a connotation of freshly slaughtered. Standing at the center of the throne, at the center of the throne, the center of the universe, the center of everything, is this little slaughtered lamb. Everything revolves around this slaughtered lamb, folks. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Those creatures, uh, they were described in chapter 4, and they go back to some creatures that are mentioned in Ezekiel, which ultimately they're, these, these, they're called cherubim, who are these high-ranking angels. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Folks, this is, this is this pivotal scene that we got to lock in. John hears the guy say, look, there's the lion, the tribe of Judah, the ferocious Messiah that everyone's expecting. But when John looks and actually sees something, he doesn't see a lion at all. He sees a lamb, a slain lamb, a slain little lamb. And throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, we read about the lamb, not the lion. This is John's methodology. Uh, it's brilliant. He'll take a, wide, a widespread, well-known, violent symbol. In fact, sometimes a graphically violent symbol. And he fuses it with its, uh, a symbol of its opposite. Nothing could be more opposite than a roaring lion than a little slain lamb. Because the lions eat the little slain lambs. And he, he puts them together. They're identified as the same thing. And in doing that, John, you'd almost think he was divinely inspired. He, he subverts the meaning of it and gives it an opposite meaning. The one that everyone thought was going to be a ferocious lion is actually the slain of the lamb. Uh, and, and putting these two things together, he's saying, and of course he's referring to Jesus Christ, who was crucified. But he says he was like a slain lamb because we know he's resurrected. We thought he was slain. They, they thought he was dead, but now he's back to life. He has triumphed. And so he's saying that Jesus Christ here is, is, is he, he's lion-like when it, in that he's mighty, and he's lion-like in that he triumphs, and he's lion-like in that, in that he's a warrior. But the way that he's mighty is in the way of a little slain lamb. The way that he's mighty is in his self-sacrificial love. And the way that he's a warrior is through his self-sacrificial love. He's not a warrior uh, like a lion devours people. He's a warrior like this little, by, by being this sacrificed little lamb. And, and, and he triumphs over evil in the end. He accomplishes God's purpose by being this slain little lamb. And so what we get in this symbol here, it's brilliant, is that this, the, the Messiah is ferocious like a lion, but he's ferocious in his, in his, in his powerful love. And he, the, the, this Messiah is violently anti-violent. And his Messiah is powerfully humble and is other-oriented and is relentless in his willingness to lay down his life for others. And he's victorious. But how is he victorious? Not by shedding the blood of others, but by shedding his own blood. Completely reverses the symbol. And this, then, is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. Because this, this lamb has got the character of God. And therefore, it has the ability to discern and de de declare for us what is the nature of God's rule, the nature of his victory, and therefore the nature of his character. He perfectly embodies all of that, and therefore he is the one to, to disclose it. And then John says that this lamb has seven horns. Uh, and the seven is a symbol of perfection, right? The horn throughout the Old Testament, and you find this in a lot of different cultures and a lot of different literature, is a symbol of power. Holding a horn is a symbol of, of, of having the power. And so what John is saying here is that this lamb is perfect power. And that's why he takes the scroll from the right hand of God. Right? The, the, the power of God, he's able to, he now is the heir of the power of God. 
because he is the one who manifests how God rules and how God is victorious. That's about his power, and that's about his character. So, folks, the perfect expression of God's power, the creator's power, the one who holds everything in existence, the perfect expression of God's power is the slain little lamb. When God flexes his almighty bicep, it looks like a slain little lamb. Uh, This is how God is powerful. This is how God rules. This is how God overcomes evil. This is God's strength. Nothing could look weaker uh, uh, than, than a little slain lamb, and yet it is just like God to rely on that kind of power. That's who he is. Throughout history, human beings have defined, have, have assumed that the gods have the kind of power that we crave. Uh, we, we've always made God after our own image, and the kind of power we crave is the power to enforce our will on others, uh, to defend ourselves, to conquer our enemies, to get our way, and, and all the rest. And so we assume that if the gods are more powerful than us, well, then they must have a super, be a super example of that. They, they have a maximal amount of that kind of power. And so we've always depicted God as these Zeus Thor-like kind of beings. A perfect symbol of that kind of power would be Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator or a cage fighter with a tattoo on his leg and a sword in his hand and a commitment to make someone bleed. That'd be appropriate if that's the kind of power that God exercises. But he doesn't. What John is telling us in this marvelous book is that the kind of power he exercises is the power of laying down your life for your enemies. It's the power of self-sacrificial love. It's the power of, of, of innocence. In fact, folks, not only is the lamb the example, a symbol of this, but the lamb is it. Because on the cross, that is where God's rule was established. And on the cross, that is where God's foes were in principle defeated. And so Revelations 5 is simply a symbolic expression of Calvary. The whole thing is about Calvary, the meaning of Calvary. Calvary is where the scroll was opened. Calvary is where the secret of God's character was unveiled. Calvary is where God's method for overcoming evil was put into practice and evil was in principle uh, destroyed. Calvary is where we see the true character of God. And so in all these brilliant ways that John is doing, he's telling us that God is violently anti-violent. He's ferocious in his his self-sacrificial love. And this this is a secret. Most of the world doesn't get this. And we'll see later on that they're under deception. They make God after their own image. But God's people are to know the truth. That the true God is the opposite of what people have always thought. And John wasn't the only one to say it. Paul tells us this very thing. In case you're thinking that, I, that this is too crazy, it's a shocking symbol, and it, it, something must be wrong here. Come on, God isn't a little lamb. But John wasn't the only one to say it. Paul said it. He says the, the Jews seek after signs and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's his message, Christ crucified. And then he says, this is foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, those who submit to Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the crucified Christ, is the power, is, is God's power and God's wisdom. The crucified Christ is God's power and wisdom. What looks foolish to the world is the wisdom of God. And what looks weak to the world is the power of God. Folks, this is so crazy. A human being could never make this up on their own. It's one of the ways you know it's true. Who would invent this stuff? It's too beautiful for a human to invent. It's, it's too... And it's so shocking that the vast majority of Christians today don't accept it. But there it is, folks. This is what God looks like when he's flexing his muscle. This is how God overcomes evil. And John is saying all this, not just to give us good theology, but he, he's saying it to these seven churches in the province of Asia because they are facing likely persecution and likely martyrdom. And so he's reminding them, Remember the cross, which is the way God rules and the way God is victorious. 
And so when it looks like you're losing, just know that you're winning. Uh, when it looks like the devil's winning, because all the Christians are being put to death, and the world will be rejoicing. We find that in the book of Revelation. Uh, they'll be rejoicing because they think that, that now the beast has devoured the lamb. you got to know that that means you're winning. So take heart. Uh, you know that when you die, that's not the loss. That, that's not the end. That's your way of being victorious, by being faithful to the call of God, by following the lamb wherever he goes. That's the expression that John uses. Imitating the lamb in all things, you will be victorious even if you die, even if you shed your blood. When you refuse to fight, when you rather are willing to let them do to you what they did to Jesus, that is your victory. And in the end, that love will conquer everything. That love will win in the end. Every square inch of the universe will be defined by that love. And all who are consistent with that love will be dancing in it for all eternity. Uh, it's a word of encouragement to the church under persecution. It's a word to us today, however. Uh, it's not likely that many in this auditorium are going to be facing immediate martyrdom. But there are folks that are associated with Woodland Hills who are in a situation like that. Uh, but for all of us, it means this. I'll close with this. It means, folks, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we, we'll find the same Jesus throughout Revelation as we found in the Gospels. It means that we've always got to keep our eyes on that slaughtered little lamb, knowing that that's God's character. And if ever it seems to us like God's not acting like that, know that we must be misinterpreting something. Trust, trust, put a trust in the sacrifice little lamb to be the one who discloses the content of the scroll, discloses the nature of God's rule and his vanquishing of evil. And it means this, folks. If God runs the universe and overcomes evil with the power of self-sacrificial love, it means we have to conduct our life, run our life under his lordship with the power of self-sacrificial love. It means the kind of power we trust has got to be only the power of self-sacrificial love. If God relies on that power, we've got to rely on that power. And so I want to ask this question. I'll end with this. What kind of power do you trust, really? What kind of power do you rely on, really? And Holy Spirit, help us be honest with ourselves about this because we're so easily self-deceived. Ask yourself the question, is there a person in your life or an area of your life where you're trusting a different kind of power, the world's power, the power to coerce, the power to control, the power to manipulate, the power to intimidate, the power to shame? Uh, is there a person that you're trying to correct by having power over them rather than power under them? A person you're trying to change or a person you're trying to impose your will on? Think about this. And if there is, I encourage us to purge that from our life and to ask God to give us the character of the slain little lamb, which is always humble, which is always servant, which always washes the feet of others. Of course, there are, are areas of our life where, like parenting, where you have got to have exercise restraints. That's your way of serving them. When a person is, is not of age or, or doesn't have the capacity, uh, they might harm themselves. There, it's loving to impose constraints. But, but when we're talking about our, our everyday lives, the only kind of power we're to trust is not the power of force or coercion, manipulation, threats, the power of government, the power of bullets, the power of bombs. It's the power of the slain little lamb. He roars like a lion, but he roars with love. We're to be people who roar with that kind of love in every area of our life. So find all those areas and submit them to God, ask for forgiveness, and then ask him to give you the character, cultivate the character of the slain little lamb. In the end, that's the only thing that's going to last forever. And so you want to be cultivating that as much as possible. That's our eternal reward. How much like the lamb do we look? Okay, I want to close in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. If you are here uh, and have any need that could use some prayer, please come up here. And it may be about that character thing. Maybe, you know, 
Maybe it's even about wanting to have that kind of character. Because our, our culture conditions us to actually like the pride fighter more than the little lamb. We trust the pride fighter more than we do the slain little lamb. Uh, well, ask God to change your heart. And so pray with these folks. But it could be about a financial thing or emotional thing, whatever it is. Uh, they'd love to pray with you. Would you stand? As I said this out with this commission, can we go out of here, not as pride fighters who are going to win a fight, but as little slain lambs who just want to bow to the world and love on the world the way Jesus did and serve the way Jesus did uh, with the humility of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the confidence of Jesus. Can we be people who trust that power wins in the end and rely on nothing else? So in Jesus' name, let us go forth as little lambs. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out love on the world.